Hello, welcome to Unofficial Partner, the sports business podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. This is the second in our series called The Buy Side, conversations about the reality of sport and sponsorship with CMOs and other senior brand side marketing decision makers. Today's guest is Peter Markey, CMO of TSB Bank. Peter is responsible for all of the bank's marketing and digital sales activity from brand analytics, research, effectiveness, strategy, social media, and marketing communications, managing a team of over 100 people across multiple sites. He was formerly marketing director of Aviva, the insurance company, and CMO of the post office, RSA, and more than. To find more conversations about every facet of the sports business, just search Unofficial Partner in your favorite podcast app and sign up to our weekly newsletter via unofficialpartner.com. So Pete, thanks for coming on. We, uh, we're going to talk about sport and sponsorship later on. But first of all, can you just define your job? CMO at TSB, I've got an idea about what it might, might be, but just tell us, what, what, how do you define it? Yeah, no worries. So it's everything you think of really in a core marketing job. So it's branding, it's sponsorship, it's data, it's research, it's digital. So a bit of all of that. And tell me about the brand then. So TSB, I am. It used to be Lloyd's TSB. It was TSB before that. I've got an idea. Again, I've, I come with all sorts of preconceptions and um, possibly right and wrong about the TSB brand. Why is it different than other banks? Yes, yeah, so TSB actually came back to the high street just around seven years ago um, as a result of um, actually the banking crisis 10 years ago and a European Union ruling that Lloyds needed to give up a certain number of branches. TSB was brought back as a standalone bank, no longer part of Lloyds. Um, I've been going from uh, strength to strength ever since, really, all about um, money confidence, helping people with their money in their local communities and local environments, all about people helping people. So those are real kind of points of difference. How do you think the the sort of marketing behaviour of the banking sector generally has has changed since the banking crisis? Yeah, I think it's um, uh, become a lot more about um, the importance of service and looking after people, I think, rightly so, more than ever. And I think uh, a lot of banks have quite understandably put a human face on their business. So you see more you know, colleagues in advertising and more, I guess, more emotional driven work about uh, banks that are, are there and supporting customers. So the level of customer support and help definitely in the comms is dialed up. Just in terms of the broad, the definition of marketing, because I always, I sometimes think that the advertising and marketing industry has allowed it to become quite a narrow comms focused sort of uh, business. And a lot of the, the, the work that used to be defined as marketing, which is broader than comms, has sort of gone to the big four consulting groups and and what how do you do you agree with that or do you see it as a as a comms function yeah i, th- I think ultimately it's a comms function i think um i mean at, at its heart i think marketing is about understanding customers it's understanding who the customers are you want to serve and making sure you do everything you can to serve them the very best you can and i think That is about comms, but I do think marketing's role is much bigger now. It's about using that insight on the customer to shape better service experiences, better propositions, to ensure the culture in the organization lives up to the brand as well. So no, I I think it's definitely comms, but I think it's broader. I think it's much more about helping a business live and breathe its purpose and serve its customers brilliantly. And how how does sort of digital work into that? Is that... I mean, obviously, that's the big sort of growth area. Everyone in sport is talking about digital transformation, going direct to customer. How is that in in a banking 
context? I think it, it's it's really important. Um, and look, I'm still a huge advocate for face to face and physical presence. I think um, actually, you know, people still do want to you know visit um, uh, and meet real people, when, particularly when it comes to sorting out a mortgage. They do want to pick up the phone. But equally, digital, as we've all seen, is, is has accelerated, particularly through the last few months with them. With the coronavirus situation, so um, so yeah, digital is really important. And actually, you know, I, I own the digital sales experience within my team, so a lot of my time and energy is spent in continuing to improve our our sales experience. So when people first join us, or when they're taking on an additional product, the experience is the very best that it can be. So it's yeah, massively important part of my job and what the business is doing. Is there a danger? I mean, I, I guess in the suggestion in that is that as we move from face to face to sort of doing things via our phones is that the traditional role of the bank which again is broader there is a there is there was a social element to banking that was important and is that is that a tension that you're sort of very aware of in terms of of losing that personal connection yeah i I think i'd I'd express it in the the danger of commoditization i i see um a number of sort of not just in banking but financial services areas where you know, I worked in insurance for years, and I think insurance has become too commoditized. If you look at, you know, if you look at the fact you can get most of that through comparison websites, and it's just sort of you know bouncing logos and prices on the screen compared to where it was say ten years ago. And I and I and I think you know for banking, you know, the the, the balance with moving more things to digital is making sure you don't lose what your brand's about in the process. And I think you don't just become you know you know it's not a race to get just the best app. I think it's to get the very best app for your target market market that actually demonstrates what your your brand is about. So I think as as more becomes digital, I think not losing your purpose and what you're about in the process is really key. And also, you know, your, your very valid point about the inter- the connectivity people feel with real relationships and real people, you know, putting humanity and people at the heart of what you're doing in digital, whether it's including video calls or online chat as part of that. I think there's still a need for that real human interaction. So it's trying to do the best you can to replicate parts of that in the digital experience as well. So you can almost see a situation. It's interesting that, that you know, in in a sports context, we've seen, you know, a huge influx of online betting brands who are, um, again, differentiation is, is very difficult and they are using sport football shirts, Premier League football shirts to try and find some way of, of fight you know a physical embodiment of the of the brand you can sort of see a big entrance of new banking brands i guess and we're seeing a bit of it but that's always been a quite a slow market but do you think that is that part of your vision of the future or the idea is that being modeled on a you know from a banking perspective because i can see that tsb's role in the world but also you you have got to your point you know a, a sea of logos and and apps could be coming at me and say offering various things around chipping away at your core market. Is that is that something that a banking brand is 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 looking at? Yeah, I, I think it's um that I, I've worked in a number of different industries where you know everyone I've worked in competition is healthy, isn't it? I think um, actually having people that come in and innovate and disrupt certain markets, and I found this in both insurance, I found it in energy and other markets I've worked in. You know that. You know that actually can be a good thing from a customer perspective. So, I think though, you know, in markets like banking, it's all about continual innovation and not standing still, and continuing to meet the needs of your customer you know, in a way that best demonstrates, you know, what you're about as a brand and is and is ultimately is different. 
Um, so I think that's where the energy's got to be. And, and then any any competition that comes in that market, you need to use as a catalyst for positive change within within your own organisation. Um, so no, I, I, th- I think it, it, for me, it's about, that, you know, as I said a second ago, it's about never standing still. It's about the constant drive for innovation. And that's what I think the financial services sector is all about at the moment. And, you know, to, to the earlier point about the sort of financial crash and the impact, because it was seismic on, you know, societal, but also on the banks themselves in terms of fundamentally, but also the way they communicate. Do you think that we've seen a sort of brand purpose movement and it's got to be linked to the financial crisis in some way. Do you, what's the evidence that it works? How do you, did you, are you a believer in brand purpose? No, I, yes, yes, I am. I think um, it's interesting. I, I think, I, you know, I, I think the, the, the watch out with any purpose is it has to be real. It has to be lived and breathed. And I, and I think, um, you know, there's loads of evidence I've seen, you know, from, you know, both primary and secondary research and articles and, you know, relevant journals over, over even the last couple of years, let alone the last 10, that show that actually, you know, people are looking more and more at, at the what sits behind an organisation, what makes it tick. And I think very much the, the table stakes of choosing some organisations now are about the values you uphold as an organisation and, and what you do and what you're seen to be doing. Um, so, no, I, I think purpose is really important, but it has to be lived and breathed throughout the organisation. I, I touched on this a second ago. I mean, I think... There's a fantastic model that Interbrand use about, you know, how to be really successful at delivering on your purpose. And they say you've got to deliver it not just through your marketing and communications, but your products and services need to scream out that purpose. They need, they need to be really clear. Every product says that purpose. Your cultures and the people that, that uh, work for your business need to be demonstrating and living that, that, that purpose. And then the environment and channels from your branches to your digital offering need to be sort of screaming out that purpose as well. And, and it's only really when all four of those are working together, when your purpose becomes not just real in the organization, but real to your customers as well. And if you're only doing one of those boxes, you know, i.e. popping it in your ad and saying, well, we're X, Y, and Z, you just need someone to experience that and find that's not a reality. And then, then you've undermined your own purpose. So I'm a firm believer in that model and think that all four of those boxes need to be lived and breathed for your purpose to be 100% real and effective. The, the implications of that more broadly are quite quite stark, aren't they, in terms of, well, you are now vulnerable to a bad news story much more than you are before. If you're, if you're leading on brand purpose as a part of your, you know, the core of the business, it means that any bad story amplifies far more you're more vulnerable than you were before perhaps i think even with standing purpose i think brands brands are more in the spotlight than ever before i mean you, you know, take you know some of the online fashion shops and some of the the, the challenges they've had over the last few news stories and so on and i'm not i'm not aware whether they have a purpose or not but they're in the public eye therefore so i i i'm i'm of the view that that actually you know as a business now um acting responsibly is is more important than ever and you know, and, and as you say, you know, if you, if you have a purpose, and, and uh, you know, you need to be living and breathing that. So I, I think it's a, and I've said this on every any bit of brand purpose work I've done. I did some purpose work in a big insurance company, global insurance company, a few years back now, and I've done it you know, more recently in TSB. You know, any any bit of purpose work, you have to walk into it knowing that it has to be real. You know, it's not a, 
a poster that hangs on a wall that you, you know, everyone nods along to. It's it's real in the business, and then if it's real, you're living and breathing it, and therefore you um you act accordingly. So you you know you act to avoid those sort of situations simply because you know it's real in the organisation and it's got integrity. That's what matters. I was talking to David Weldon actually on this podcast a few weeks ago where, and he's obviously just retired from RBS and, and formerly Barclays CMO. Um, his, one of the points that we were talking about there was that brand purpose is quite difficult to make entertaining. There is a, you, it, it sets a certain tone around the sort of creative execution work. So the outcomes can come across as a bit sort of dull and worthy rather than, um, and we were, we were comparing that to advertising in the past, which there was ads that made us laugh or they were, you know, more charming. And actually the brand purpose route is a bit one dimensional. Is that, is that tricky for you? I don't think so with the brands I've worked on. Um, if I look at, you know, the sponsorship we do at TSB, we, 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 we it's sponsorship, but we would call it a partnership with the Pride of Britain, which we sponsored for over five years now. And that partnership is about, people helping people, which is at the heart of our brand. And it's about, you know, everyday ordinary people doing extraordinary things, whether it's rescuing, rescuing someone from a burning car, founding a cancer charity, or, um, you know, you're finding a, a vaccine or a medicine to, you know, a, you know, a, a, a disease, you know, the sorts of things that come out of Pride of Britain, you know, and that, that is something that is hugely engaging. You know, both we know that from the audience figures for the people that watch the, the program uh, when it goes out and engage with the content online but also just from the research feedback as well so i i think if, if you connect with the right uh, sponsorship property and activate it in the right way i think it can be really interesting and really engaging it's just about finding the right thing for your brand it's not about where i think it is a bit flat is when brands badge stuff you know that you know and just slap their logo on and, and it just you know, it, it, it doesn't do more than that. It hasn't got a greater depth to it. I do think there needs to be depth to sponsorship and meaning behind it that, that you can then activate and do something with that becomes real to your customers and to every colleague within the organisation as well. So looking across at TSB and we move into the sports question, there isn't any sport in your portfolio, am I right in saying that? There isn't today, no. I, I did The last bit of sports sponsorship I, I personally did in, in depth in a big way was the Aviva Premiership rugby sponsorship, and I've worked, uh, you know, on sports sponsorship. I'm a big fan of sports, but um, at TSB we've decided that the right thing for us is, is, is Pride of Britain, mainly because look, it's, it's it's true to our values, it's true to what we're about, it's true to our purpose. I also think sports sponsorship for financial services is is quite crowded and been quite well worn, um, and um, and actually there's just something intrinsically true to what we're about in Pride of Britain that's quite hard to replicate in other things. Let's talk about Aviva then and, you know, your, well, let's talk about sports sponsorship generally. What are the what are the pros and cons? So you're liberated from having to sort of defend it because you don't have any rights, uh, sports rights. So what what does it do well? And also what are its limitations? Well, I think it's a positive. You know, sports fans, you know, are hugely passionate people about the sport or the team or the discipline that they follow. And I think if you can capture that and harness that in your sponsorship and association, it's a great way to connect with people in a relevant way. Sport is also about the things we enjoy in our downtime, our time outside of office hours, our social time, our fun time, our time with friends, time with family. And again, if you can tap in and be part of that experience, you know, you're, you're harnessing into 
part of people's fun time, part of what they enjoy. And if your brand becomes synonymous and known with that, I think those things can rub off well on, on people's perception of, of a given brand. I think the challenges that come with it are, there's probably just a couple that come to mind. The, the first of which is that clearly that, you know, some sports appeal more to some people than others. So you've got to get your target audience spot on. You know, and you know, if you sponsor one club over another club, you've got to be really clear, you know, are you alienating some audiences to, to, to target a sp- one audience specifically? So I think the targeting, the, the ability to zone in specifically is, is really important in, in this kind of uh, kind of sponsorship, I think, as well. Um, so I, I think it's, it's those would be the, the concerns I've got. But I think, you know, if you walk into it with your eyes open and you know, this is back to a bit about knowing your customers, I think it's really important. That if you get that bit right, I think you're okay. The other, the other bit is just the, the danger of having what I call a hollow sponsorship of just badging something. And I've been offered too many things over the last 10 years that have just been not thought through, where someone's approached me with some rights and gone, well, you know, we think your logo would look good with this and we think we're a good fit, but they don't really understand the brand. You know, the best sponsorship pitches I've had are ones where people really intrinsically understand what the brand I'm working for represents and how it would fit with that association. Um, so I think, you know, Get the audience right. Be clear. And you know, if you are going to uh, target a certain audience but alienate another, are you okay with that? And secondly, you know, I, you know, can you go further than just a badging exercise? Can you make it real both to the people in the business and to your customers about why you're doing that sponsorship? And can you activate it? You know, can you not just put your logo on it? Can you can you invest behind it? Really activate it so people know about it and it has meaning. In terms of the impact on Aviva of rugby. You weren't involved. Did you make the decision to come away from rugby? No, I didn't actually. It was um, I, I, I was in quite an, an interesting position when I joined Aviva because Aviva had decided two things when I walked in. The first of which was to stop the Norwich City shirt sponsorship and the second of which was to end the rugby premiership. And so I, I sat through the last period of, of that. But interesting, the business still wanted to ensure that, I guess addressing my last two points, that, that we, you know, we maximise the opportunity to engage with those audiences and, and make them relevant from um you know if I look at Norwich City there was a a lot done at local community level you know with the charity side of Norwich City to activate that in the city of Norwich. Um and with the premiership we, we did a lot around content with um you know a number of the, the top premiership rugby players. We were very involved obviously in the final just to to activate and bring it to life and sort of tell a story around you know Viva obviously has a health wing, the health side of it and the and the link into some of the other stuff we did just to give that resonance. So, um, yeah, that's what, what I plan to do. Is there, in, in terms of London 2012, obviously Lloyd's CSB were, were a major local partner um, of that. Has there, been, what's, has there been any sort of enduring impact on the brand or on the company of that relationship? Um, I think probably that if, if, if anyone would have felt that, it would have been more Lloyd's than the TSB side. Um, I do still work with colleagues in TSB who came across from Lloyd's um, and that is spoken of very highly uh, as a particular positive uh, moment for the brand. Look, I mean, London 2012 was incredible, wasn't it? I think we all look back on it as, a, as something that was was truly extraordinary. Um, so no, all I hear is positive things about it. Um, you know, I think for us as a brand, we're now becoming more and more known as, as TSB standalone, particularly after seven years. So I think... Um, yeah, as I say, things like Pride of Britain and the things we're involved in now have a greater impact than things that, that, that would have happened in the past. You've mentioned audience and getting the, you know, understanding the audience. How do you understand the audience? How do you define them for, for, for your brand? 
So a good starting point for that is is looking at um, if you're an established brand, is is who who are your customers today? And businesses don't do enough to understand who they're serving today. Which customers are attracted to the brand, gravitate towards it? Which ones are buying more products from you? What they think about your brand or other brands? That's a good starting point. Uh, but also, you know, you know, I think you touched on this earlier on about what should sit in marketing, and I think you know, marketing needs to not forget it. it needs to be very strategic. So it's not just about then what you've got today, which is important, but what your aspiration is to the future. Are there audiences that your brand could better appeal to or better appeal to today that you're under underweighting? And again, those can be a catalyst. Those things can be a catalyst for sponsorship. And it might be you find a, a sport, a team or event that appeals to the customers you've already got because you want more of them. Or it might be you identify, actually, there's quite a different audience you, you want to get to. Um, I, I got involved in... Um, uh, some mid net, mid net worth work when I was at, at More Than, you know, and we had launched a, a brand called More Than Premier, and More Than you know, had the room to reach into a slightly more affluent audience, and we did some um, sort of community based uh, rugby sponsorship at the time, and and um, you know and that that worked well as, as a kind of a, 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 a signal into a slightly different market. So again, if you identify that different market, you know, there's ways into it, and sponsorship can be a powerful way to unlock that, particularly because. If you're trying to get relevance with a certain audience, if you, again, if you've got an audience that are already engaged with a certain type of event, like a rugby event or it could be cricket or something else, and you know you want to appeal there, it's a good shortcut into giving your brand um, some immediate relevance if you activate it in the right way. And just on a on a sort of practical level, how are you? I mean, I'm assuming that the information or the data you get on your customer come you know you're a bank so you know what we're doing on a fairly granular basis is that right is that is that the basis of your looking at customers plus research is is research you know traditional research still a, still a factor yeah research massively important but there are you know there are obviously segmentation models you, you can you can acquire or invest in yourself build out your own or there are you know organizations like uh, CACI come to mind or others where Actually, you can tap into existing segmentations that can then be overlaid with with your own uh, with your own base. So you don't have to start from scratch. Actually, you can work with third parties, you know, to map your audiences and give you a view. Because I, th- I think that mapping is so important. Because you know, you shouldn't, as I say, just look at your own audience. If you look at you know what representation you've got of the UK consumer. So CACI is a good example where CACI could could tell you, um, you know, what you've got of your own customer. Um, your own audience as a percentage of the UK population and what you're potentially missing out on and where some of the opportunity spaces lie. What is CACI? So there are, there are, uh, I've got a number of these, Experian or another one, just a, just a data provider. So Experian, CACI, um, there are a number out there, Axiom. I think, you know, companies that are just, you know, have a really good, rich understanding of UK consumers, um, that then uh, you, know, you can work with and then use that to apply onto your own understanding and enrich that as well. So one of the questions, I guess, for people selling sports sponsorship on the other side, if you're a team or a league, is that how do they prove to you that their fans are, that, that their depth of research and the, the information they have on their fans is always the question mark? So are you convinced when you have a sponsorship conversation that they know their fans in a way that is useful yeah i think um there's no pitch i've i've seen or or been or document i've been sent that doesn't do what you just said i think that the question then is it's great you know all that but but what's the fit with our brand and it and it 
for me, it's never just enough that you know some there's an amazing club or an amazing sport that's got this affinity. It, it's it's the next leap on from that, which is the kind of the so what of well, and then what does that then mean for our brand? So either you know you know the rights holder has, has identified that that. You know, they, they, they've also looked at your customer base through some research and they've identified there's all these parallels. You know, I don't know, eight out of 10 of, of um, you know, I don't know if Eva's customers love rugby or whatever the equivalent is. You know, what, what's that data point? What's the interact? You know, what, what's, what, how do these brands come together? What's the mutually beneficial coming together of the rights holder and the brand in, in, in the middle of all that? And then just a sense of, you know, ideas for activation. You know, often... Been a couple of times I've been sent football shirts with our logo on, and, and I mean they look great. It's like, well, but that's not just what I want to do. So, well, you know, is it about how would I engage with your fans? You know, um, what could we do together? You know, is it is it a special proposition we develop together, a special offer? Um, you know, what are the extra things that we we could do together that would um you know make the partnership have a lot more depth, a lot more a lot more meaning to it. Um, and particularly given that a number of these things are what three, five-year deals, um, you know, I'd, I'd be wanting to see well, what does that three or five-year period look like? What would we do together that that could cement this? And actually, may mean that three or five years becomes ten or fifteen years or longer, you know, by virtue of what, what what we could do together if the, if the the rights holder and the, and the, the brand owner you know, worked uh, brilliantly to, uh, sort of side by side. And that's that's down to the rights holder. You think that's the that's the sale. That's the responsibility of the sales side to to yeah. um, identify what you're trying to get inside your strategy and trying to understand the bank to the extent that they can come with a very bespoke, precise offer. I think it's it quite is, difficult, isn't it? It is quite difficult. I think I think you need at least a bit of that for step one. I think there's yeah to get in. It might be to get in the door. You need a bit of that understanding. I don't. I wouldn't expect everyone to know our brand inside now. Yeah, because frankly they they can't. But they need to know enough and have taken enough of an interest to get it at least right enough that the next stage of the conversation is interesting. The part I've just described, you know, three, five-year plan, yeah, that's probably more second or third stage conversation when it starts to get really interesting. But at least to get the foot in the door, at least, I guess, show you've done your homework, show that you know the brand, you know, and and, um, and it's I guess it's greater than skin deep. You've taken the time to really understand where the, the fit could be between the, the, the sport event or club um, and the brand you're talking to. On the on the the tenure question, so obviously the one of the conversations around CMOs is that they have a particular, you know, that the, the, their tenure is getting shorter. And I don't want to talk about the end of your job, but there's a um, is there a temptation on your part to make a statement? I'm here for a period of time, and I'm the person who did this, did this campaign. I'm, you know, you need to be in front of some 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 of this work. Um, is that how does that play into your decision making? Yeah, I think I'll probably put it a little bit differently. I, I, I think you need to leave a brand better than you found it, and and, um, and that doesn't mean you need to change everything in the process. I mean, I, I inherited the Pride of Britain partnership. I didn't come up with it; it was there already, and I built on it and added uh, new events, new dimensions to it, and, and deepened that. But um, I didn't feel when I came in that my job was to just go, well, that wasn't me. Let's put it in the bin and, and come up with a new signature thing. You know, so I think you, you, for me, it's about it's about the journey you take a brand on and making sure it's in, in, in better health or stronger or more resilient to the point you move on to, to what's next. Um, so, look, yeah, I mean, yeah, 
you're right. I mean, as a CMO, you look for signature things in your tenure that might be changing the makeup of your team, changing agencies, launching a new campaign, relooking at a brand's purpose. Um, but I don't think it's about um, always about wholesale change unless something is is fundamentally wrong. You know, and I think yeah, I, I'd be naive coming into every any job thinking oh everything's rubbish. I think that's a really bad perspective. I think you need to come in looking for the good, you're looking for the the kind of bottling the magic of that brand and the things that really work and then going, right, what are the bits I need to refresh or change? And that could be a, a, some kind of signature uh, sponsorship. Um, but I don't think any CMO should, should look at it and go, well, I'm, I don't, I'm going to sign a, a, a deal just just to kind of mark something special in, 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 in a tenure. I think it, it's got to be more about, you know, wh- where's the tra- trajectory this takes the brand on? Um, and... Um, you know, and how does that fit with our broader strategy, and what does what does that do? As you say, given it, you know, if someone's in a job for you know a couple of years, it, it, it's you you want to you know, um, and that would be a very short tenure. I mean, you you want to, I think, leave, leave it at the point where if, if you when you're passing the baton on to the next person, the decisions you've made make sense, and you've sort of created a platform that takes the brand on whoever then runs that 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 function next, and they don't have to come in and kind of you know, reverse all that because it's it's been a kind of a short-term decision. So I think the thinking's got to be done in the long term. It's got to be done with a clear strategy in mind that makes sense. And the other bit is you, know, you need to get all the support around the table from the CEO and others around the exec table. So again, if someone new comes in to run that marketing function, you know, the exec are fully briefed on, on why marketing are doing the things they're doing. And they don't look at it and go, well, hang on a minute. I, I, I never liked that sponsorship. Or I never liked that thing. You know, the buy-in at the top table is really important. And I look at any sponsorship I've done from sport to music events um to the british comedy awards when i worked in in telco a few years ago through to what we do with pride of britain the narrative is well understood at an exact level so it's not just a cmo owned thing it's a business owned thing and i think that selling is massively important so it's the sort of decisions you don't make are just as important presumably yeah i think so yeah 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 well all, all the things you decide to not do you know and i think you know Actually, deciding to not do something can be as important as deciding to do it because I think you know, as a brand that you've got choices and, and things you want to be involved with, things you want to be associated with, the choices you make are therefore conscious and really matter because they're directional. They're about the long-term health of your brand. So um, all those moments, all those decisions really, really matter. And I always wonder if the, it's possible for a CMO to sort of ruin a brand. You know, there, there's. I'm just in terms of sometimes brands need protecting from an ambitious CMO. Is that right? You know, that's that could be one of the outcomes that you're talking about. I think any. I think this is back to the bit about um, the sponsorship you've got at the top of an organisation and the selling you've got is. I I think, I think CMOs have a duty to get to get things right uh, with the sponsorship of the CEO down. Um, and therefore, as I say, every decision then matters from sponsorship through to your advertising campaign to, to what you're doing. Um, but look, the, the brand is a duty, not just of the CMO of the business. This is back to my purpose example a moment ago, the four boxes, you know, about not just communications, but the culture of the business, the products and services, everything you do. So I think, you know, with that in the ownership of the entire business, the CMO's job is to get that right on your point, to not get that wrong. Uh, and the heart of getting it right is understanding your customers you know, and serving them really, really well and knowing your points of difference. Plus also playing that role in the organization to sell in the vision, get everyone across it and for everyone to play their part in that success. Okay, so just just to finish off, let's talk um, 
sport is that something you're is it one of your strong interests or is it something of marginal interest to you just put from a personal point of view are you a, are you a football fan I, I'm, fan? I'm a football fan but i am i find it, i have a lot of uh, uh rugby fans in the family so my, my brother-in-law and my father are huge supporters of bath so i have been uh, to a few bath matches i really like watching bath rugby has been less my thing but i but i enjoy it when i go um football i support um um Probably embarrassed slightly to say support Portsmouth, uh, who are uh, probably not uh, as up and coming as they were quite a few years ago, but um, they're um, doing just about okay um, in uh, in League One. But um, but no, so yeah, so, so it would be football above rugby. And outside that, I really enjoy. Um, I love tennis, so um, I know we've, we've not been able to have a Wimbledon this year, but um, love watching tennis as well. We had Mark Catlin, the uh, Portsmouth CEO, on the on the podcast. He's a uh... He's a really impressive guy, actually. I was really gutted for them not going up this year because he's yeah. he's he's sort of came across really really well in our in our interview. I really liked him. Yeah, he's a good guy. He comes across well, and he's 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 again he's one of those people with a vision, um, and and he's liked by you know he's liked by the fans, and and yeah, doing a good job, good guy. Okay, Pete. Well, thanks very much for your time. Really enjoyed that, and uh, good luck in the uh, COVID. Impact. We didn't even ask a COVID question. That's pretty good. No, we did well, didn't we? Look, good, great to talk to you. And thanks for having me on. Cheers. Cheers.